Welcome. Um, we've had a small hiatus uh, and are restarting to complete the history of anatomy section over the next few weeks. The next region is entitled Sibling Rivalry in the 18th Century, the Hunter Brothers and Displays of the Natural Economy. I want to start, as I normally do, with a couple of quotes. You do not dissect bodies, but adorn them. You bring them into the theatre, cleansed from all dirt, perfectly in limb, and the obedient muscles are freed upon your touch. You show yourself not an anatomist, but what is far greater, a god. It's a kind of bizarre quote, really, from Thomas Baines, who was a student, writing of his Paduan anatomy professor, Antonio Molinetti, who was born around about 1610 to 15, not clear, and died in 1675. And it was quoted in the London Physician uh, by Gideon Harvey in 1683, uh, a paper entitled From the Conclave of Physicians Detecting Their Intrigues, Frauds and Plots Against the Patients. An extraordinary uh, book. A second quote comes from William Hunter, that were I to place a man of proper talents on the most decent road for becoming truly great in his profession, I would choose a good practical anatomist and put him into a large hospital to attend the sick and dissect the dead. One can almost feel the conflict of interest there. Uh, that comes from his two introductory lectures uh, delivered to his last course of anatomical lectures at the Theatre in Great Windmill Street in London, which was published in 1784. Um, there's a third one by Charles Bell. By anatomy, I understand not merely the study of the individual and dissected muscles of the face or body or limbs, but of the character of infancy, youth or age the peculiarities of sickness or of robust health, the traits of human expression, the representation of sentiment and passion. And that comes from the Anatomy of Expression in Painting, written by the anatomist Sir Charles Bell. And it shows, I think, the different views about what anatomy was about. It wasn't just about dissection. It was about the character, as he says, of all the almost Shakespearean stages of um, development. A lot about the difference between human and animal expression and what it meant, in a sense, to be human. And these people were speaking around sort of 60 years or so before um, Darwin articulated his views about evolution. So there was this kind of racial definition uh, that occurred with anatomy. Enter two of the most outstanding anatomists of their day, William and John Hunter, so closely enmeshed that we must consider them together. Together or no, they would prove in their ambitions for the science and the exposition of the anatomy of the cadaver the very model of sibling rivalry. The older William, born on the 23rd of May 1718 and died on the 30th of March 1783, 
had invited his younger brother, John, 13th of February, 1728, born to the 16th of October, 1793, died. From their long Calderwood home in South Lanarkshire, bordering the lower reaches and suburbs of Glasgow, down to the dissecting rooms William had established at Great Windmill Street in London. And there John, without any formal education, honed a craft that was to unquestionably in short order through an obsession with dissection, soon make him the premier anatomist in England. From John would arise a a passion not only for understanding the structure of cadavers and almost every dissectable animal or plant available locally or brought by fishermen and explorers alike from exotic lands, but also for an incessant experimentation of human physiology and through connection with philosophers, artists, economists and politicians, amused dissection, if you like, of the human condition. The unbridled heterogeneity of theories covered by John and his ability to accumulate more than 13,000 specimens over his lifetime without question eclipsed the light that emanated from his older brother. And such personal animus between the men over the generalities of individual accomplishment as well as over the specific fights around particular subjects of discovery should not overlook William's achievements, founding one of the premier private teaching anatomy schools in Europe, changing the experience and safety for women during childbirth and reforming the British public hospital system. That they were two very different men is in no doubt, with those inherent differences in temperament fueling an enduring competitiveness over their closely shared pursuits. William was reserved and possessed a dour Scottish temperament that saw him initially study divinity before switching to medicine and moving to London in 1737 to work with the renowned anatomist obstetrician William Smelly. 1697 to 1763. Smelly, who had so shocked London society by openly dissecting women, inspired William to pursue an obstetric practice, and over time the older hunter became the foremost obstetrician in London and personal physician extraordinary to Queen Charlotte. And in that capacity, actually, William attended the confinement and births of Queen Charlotte's 15 children, 13 of whom survived into adulthood. William's contemporary, Sir Caesar Hawkins, had personally recommended him for the position in 1762. Um, Notes of his brother actually suggested that William's management of the pregnancies of the Princess of Brunswick and Lady Butte, for example, had so impressed that they too had both recommended him um, to the Queen. A confirmed bachelor, William's disposition was one supported by genteel refinement and fastidiousness combined in a workaholic whose abiding interest was in dissecting and teaching. In 1768, his Annus Mirabilis, one might call it, continued with the building of a vast anatomy theatre and museum in Great Windmill Street. And it was in the same year that George III had inaugurated the Royal Academy of Arts and in a lucid moment appointed William as its first professor of surgery 
to teach aspiring, anatom- uh, aspiring artists about the human form. If we're to believe the Australian anatomist historian Ken Russell, my old professor of anatomy, no British anatomist had made a significant contribution to the subject of anatomy in the 16th century. But from 1750 onwards until his death in 1783, quote, London anatomy was William Hunter, unquote. And that comes from Ken Russell's British Anatomy, 15 to 20, 25 to 1800, a bibliography uh, which was um, uh, published uh, by Melbourne University Press. Um, William freely adopted the Parisian style of anatomy teaching, which had become so popular with the students, each of whom was permitted to quietly dissect their own cadaver rather than passively observe the teacher presenting the dissection or some prepared prosected specimens. And this Parisian method became the most popular method of anatomy training. It was the way we learned our anatomy in the 1970s. This anatomical teaching style adopted by William proved no mean feat in a private school of anatomy, but something which became his major draw card. William's lecture series was particularly intensive, running between October and May, six days a week, with several lectures daily. That's a pretty hefty schedule. His style was more than charismatic, it was riveting, as was written in a piece in the Gentleman's Magazine in 1793. Um, Quote, To consider him a teacher is to view him in his most amiable character, perspicuity, unaffected modesty, and a desire of being useful, to illustrate and enliven the most abstruse and jejune parts of anatomy, enriching the minds of all with useful knowledge, unquote. One of his brother's pupils, the surgeon John Abernethy, 1764 to 1831, conceded that William's lectures, quote, are to the surgeon what the first principles of mathematics are to the practical geometrician, without the knowledge of which a man can neither be a philosopher nor a surgeon, unquote. Obtaining the financing for his new anatomy school proved particularly difficult, however, requiring all of his consummate skills in manipulating his rather extensive political connections. William had received confirmation from John Stuart, the third Earl of Butte, of the readiness of construction funds from the government as early as 1763, and Butte had brought the matter to the attention of King George III. But when Stuart ultimately became Prime Minister and First Lord of the Treasury, he was so unpopular that he was soon voted out of office, upsetting William's plans for the dedicated school. Application to the next Prime Minister, George Grenville, was made on William's behalf by the St George's surgeon Caesar Hawkins, but neither Grenville nor his successor, Lord Shelburne, William um, Petty Fitzmaurice, who was also President of the Board of Trade, were disposed to the idea, leaving William no choice but to sink his own personal funds into the project. William reaches out to us more enigmatically than does his brother. William was a quieter, frugal and less ostentatious man who has provoked no meaningful recent biographies except through the eyes of those who might seek to edit 18th century volumes on social life and class. A particularly good one is by um, uh, Will Bynum and uh, 
Roy Porter, William Hunter and the 18th Century Medical World from Cambridge University Press in 1985, rather excellent um, uh, book on the subject. But there hasn't been a lot about William. His papers and publications have never been collated or reprinted, nor his anatomy lectures, which were highly regarded and which students described as, quote, simple and yet profound and the reverse of dry and tedious, unquote. If anything, the private anatomy schools which William promoted stimulated those working in the public hospitals to align themselves with the universities. The public anatomists, pathologists and surgeons would benefit more from the Anatomy Act, which we'll discuss later, of 1832, which made the dissection of cadavers much easier, the bodies drawn from the infirmities, workhouses, almshouses and mortuaries. Um, if they were um, simply left unclaimed. Paradoxically, William's sense of excellence in his newly fashioned private anatomy school would ultimately therefore signal its demise. The expense for the students became so great that even lectures by William and John Hunter would not prove sufficiently competitive with a negative impact on the flow of London's medical students through the hospital trusts and proving the beginning, really, of the end of the private London medical schools. Even William knew that he needed to draw his students to their dissections with special words. The competitive nature of anatomy teaching, particularly in an age where corporeal acquisition was often shady, was reinforced by his remarks to all young protégés as to the secretive and special nature of what was in store. Quote, in a country where anatomists are not legally supplied with dead bodies, he remarked at the start of his uh, lecture series. Particular care should be taken to avoid giving offence to the populace or to the prejudices of our neighbours. Therefore, it is hoped that you'll be upon your guard and out of doors speak with caution of what may be passing here. And it's a quote from his introductory lectures. He was a particularly secretive person. William was less published than his compatriots and a wealthy sophisticate who closely guarded his large private obstetric practice. But he did leave the morbid legacy, if one may say, of one book which stands out as much for how it was constructed as for what it contains, his Anatomia Uteri Humani Gravity, the anatomy of the human gravid uterus exhibited in figures. The obstetrician Sir James Young Simpson thought one of the plates, plate six, perhaps, quote, the most beautiful anatomical plate that has ever been given to the world. The fact that part of the title of the book was listed as exhibited in figures highlights the central importance of the imagery by his personal artist Jan van der Rimschlik, who created the most spectacular images in red chalk of a dead fetus lying in the womb of heavily pregnant women who themselves had died under mysterious circumstances. In the book, William, aided by dissections from John and Van Rimsdick's willingness to depict the women, presented the morbid anatomy of 14 unfortunate mothers who mystifyingly made their way... Um, onto the Hunter dissection tables over a period of 25 years. There's no other book like it before or since, and it required Van Rimsdick to sketch these cases dispassionately 
and without either asking questions as to where the women had come from or to concern himself with their personal tragedies. William was particularly aggrieved by the law which didn't permit the hanging of pregnant women convicted of capital crimes as this would have made them readily available for his dissection and research. When the dead body of a woman in her ninth month of pregnancy was delivered in 1750 to his Covent Garden home, he didn't ask any questions. The perfect storm of conditions could not have been accidental, and William even wrote of its felicity. The body was in pristine condition before any putrefaction. It appeared mysteriously in winter, an ideal time for dissection, and there was a resident artist on hand. Such a perfect set of conditions would befall the Hunter brothers another four times between 1750 and 1754, either with heavily pregnant women dying before delivery or a maternal death immediately after birth. It was all particularly convenient. By 1774, William had amassed his portfolio, tracing the growth of the fetus in real life from its earliest incarnations to full term, and Van Rimsdyk had provided him with 34 exquisite drawings that would be copper engraved for the purpose and for which there was no equal. William, unconcerned with the provenance of these women, was more impressed with the legacy the book might produce after he had found surviving anatomic illustrations by Leonardo da Vinci with the aid of the librarian of the Royal Collection at Windsor Castle. No doubt William was certain that his own images would rival those he had rediscovered of the great master da Vinci. As for Van Rimstick, little of his life is known. He was renowned for his obstetric interest, creating birth images for Hunter's mentor, William Smelly, who had invented the obstetric forceps to assist in difficult childbirth. Hunter idolised Smelly, even though the two did not agree on how much intervention and accoucheur should perform in the natural process of giving birth. Van Rimsdyk had also worked for Charles Nicholas Genty, producing the first mezzotint images of pregnant women, although both Genty's practice and the distribution of this artwork remained pretty, pretty uh, limited. Most of the originals actually for the Genty volume are now in the Pennsylvania Hospital Library, as part of the Shippen collection. Van Rimstick also created the images for John Hunter's 1771 on the natural history of the human teeth, as well as an image of the pelvis of a dwarf Martha or perhaps Mary Rhodes who underwent Britain's first caesarean section in 1772 that was performed by Henry Thompson with John Hunter as an assistant. And that image appeared in a published article, an account of the performing of the caesarean operation with remarks by Henry Thompson, commented by Dr Hunter, that appeared in the Medical Observations and Inquiries of 1772. Rather sad case, Martha Rhodes died a few hours after the operation and her child died two days later. It appears, however, that Van Rimsdyk's desire to become a society portrait painter was thwarted after moving back to Bristol, and he returned in 1778 with his painter son Andrew to produce a volume, the Museum Britannicum, for the British Museum. Uh, the book was 
elaborately entitled an exhibition of a great variety of antiquities and natural curiosities belonging to that noble and magnificent cabinet, the British Museum, illustrated with curious prints engraved after the original designs from nature, other objects, and with distinct explanation of each figure by John and Andrew Van Rimsdick, pictors. Unlike William, John freely acknowledged Van Rimsdick's work, but the slight to Van Rimsdick by William having ignored the artist's efforts can uh, cut deep. On page 84 of the Museum Britannicum that he wrote, uh, Van Rimsdick largely devoted to nature and the portrayal of birds. He writes in veiled acerbic language that borders on the paranoid, railing against a Dr. Ibis, whose thin rake-like stance and book or hook-beaked head was a veiled reference to William Hunter. After the death of his son Andrew in 1786, Jan, or as his new anglicised John van Rimstick, simply disappears from history. Notwithstanding these accomplishments, William knew that he lived in the shadow of his younger brother, despite the fact that he had invested far more effort in tutoring students and had personally taught John how to dissect a cadaver when he'd first come down to London in 1748. Back then, John had only had a carpentry apprenticeship and with no formal education was barely literate. His poor speaking style always bothered him and he was aware that years later, students recalling the manner of each brother's lectures had praised the strength and eloquence of William and dismissed John's stuttering method. James Parkinson, who described Parkinson's disease, mentioned John Hunter's lectures as, quote, J.H. Hunterian reminiscences being the substance of a course of lectures and the principles and practice of surgery delivered by Mr. John Hunter in the year 1785, taken in shorthand and afterwards fairly transcribed by the late Mr. James Parkinson. Uh, and that appeared in 1833. Even so, the younger sibling was extremely popular amongst his students, often attracting admirers from overseas to accompany him on ward rounds, and he was reputed, that is John, to have a following of more students at any of his bedside teaching sessions than virtually all of his other St George's consultant colleagues combined. John's nature, however, made him always ready for an argument, and he often became very angry if he was called out even on a minor point. But his nature was like his older brother when it came to the all-important disputes concerning the ownership of some new anatomical finding gleaned from the post-mortem room or from the operating theatre. It was John's style on matters that governed one's posterity to immediately convey anything controversial directly to his colleagues at the Royal Society. He was a complainer. And in this vein, John's anger spilled out over into the local literature in one example describing his fetal dissections in an effort to define the natural development of the testicle and how it descended from a position high in the reaches of the abdomen towards the scrotum. And in that argument, he openly called out one of his students, Alexander Monroe Jr., 1733 to 1817, impulsively accusing him of plagiarism and charging him with, quote, stupidity, falsehood and theft, 
unquote. John called out Monroe and also his colleague Pot, uh, Percival Pot, who later became Sir Percival Pot, for publishing one of his lectures on the subject as their own independent work. And on this occasion, he was supported in his claims by William in a 1762 publication entitled Medical Commentaries, containing a plain and direct answer to Professor Monroe Jr., interspersed with remarks on the structure, functions and diseases of the universal parts of the human body. The outburst worked, however, forcing Munro, who later became head of the Edinburgh Medical School, along with his alleged co-plagiarist, the eminent surgeon Percival Pott, to recant and acknowledge their indebtedness to the hunter's research. But John's obsession with his own importance, either in anatomical or physiological discovery, was boundless, and for years he sustained a feud with William over who had first described the separate vascular structure within the placenta between the maternal and fetal circulations. It mattered to John little that William had published similar data in his book The Anatomy of the Human Gravid Uterus, which we have met, some six years before John had entered the dispute, and it did not stop the younger hunter openly at society meetings formally levelling charges of plagiarism at his own brother. Unlike William, who exemplified a refined elegance, John was not an adept social animal. Despite this, his skills as a physician attracted a list of celebrity patients that reads like a who's who of the 18th century aristocracy and intelligentsia. His patients, some of whom became close friends, included Edward Jenner, the inventor of the smallpox vaccine, the painters Sir Joshua Reynolds and Thomas Gainsborough, Daniel Salander, the assistant to the naturalist Carolus Linnaeus, Oliver Goldsmith, Captain James Cook, the economist Adam Smith, Edward Gibbon, the astronomer Royal Neville Maskelyne, the inventor of the steam engine James Watt, the horse artist George Stubbs, Benjamin Franklin, the Scottish philosopher David Hume, and the botanist Sir Joseph Banks. John and his wife Anne were well known throughout Europe, with Anne setting her poetry to music commissioned as canzonets from their friend Joseph Haydn. John attended both David Hume and Sir Joshua Reynolds in their final illnesses, both for advanced liver cancer, and he then performed the post-mortem on Reynolds. William, by comparison, was a more cautious political animal who befriended Samuel Johnson, Henry Fielding and Horace Walpole, and who counted amongst his patients the Earl of Sandwich and also Prime Ministers William Pitt the Younger and his father, the first Earl of Chatham. Even if the hunters, charged with different levels of education, considered themselves landed gentry, they both still needed to overcome the generally negative regard with which surgeons and anatomists were held at the time by the public at large. The Reverend Thomas Gisborne, 1758-1846, in his 1794 compendium Inquiry into the Duties of Men in the Higher and Middle Classes of Society in Great Britain, a book that had ballooned out to 900 pages, was hardly generous to the medical profession in general, devoting only 66 pages to the English physician and none to either surgeons or anatomists.
Young John, with no real apprenticeship in surgery and a little weakened by a persistent cough, which may have been a mild case of tuberculosis, had followed Hippocrates' assertion that, quote, he who wishes to be a surgeon should go to war, unquote. And so he enlisted in the Seven Years' War, returning after a tour as ship surgeon in the successful campaign against the French army at the small island, the Belle-Ile, off the coast of Brittany. Noting the terrible outcomes of men injured with gunshot balls who had suffered more extensive surgeries, often performed in the field or in rolling ships under appalling conditions, John became more conservative in this approach, applying gentle and clean dressings to their wounds with less radical attempts to retrieve embedded shrapnel and shot. Remarkably, John's patients fared far better than those of his compatriots who were still hacking off limbs in the heat of battle. Hunter effectively reintroduced the concept of triage so that uh, more energy could be expended more efficiently on those injured cases less likely to die regardless of interventional care. His great experience of gunshot wounds formed the basis of the treatise on the blood, inflammation and gunshot wounds written in later life and only posthumously published. Extension of the war, now virtually won by the British, saw John join a more leisurely campaign in Portugal and allowed him the time to collect and examine many specimens around Lisbon. It may well have been boredom in the field or a sheer profligacy of interests that had him in spare and restful moments experimenting on hibernating lizards and pulling off their tails to watch them regrow. Such was the origin of a lifetime spent in collecting the army quartermasters tolerating John's eccentricities and allowing him to transport back to England over 200 specimens that he had collected, some preserved in local aliquots of brandy which would have normally gone to his aggrieved fellow mariners. John had a greater interest in natural history than his brother William, the older hunter, published only three works in the area, one on the Mastodon in 1768, another on fossils found in Gibraltar in 1770, and a further one in 1771 on the Asian Nilgai, or the Bacillus antelope. William, over his lifetime, published 28 medical anatomical papers, with John writing 30 natural history papers and only 20 medical anatomy studies. Returning to London on a meagre salary to a private practice set up in Golden Square, John established his own private school in 1764. But bored with his small practice, where surgery was dominated by only a few men within the city area, his restlessness saw him dissecting many animals, ranging from the smallest insects to the largest whales. His annotated observations fuelled his hoarding personality, which had turned his Earl's Court home into a museum and a menagerie, fed uh, um, with exotic animals from the Tower of London. The collection grew so large that he became desperate to find a more formal solution, particularly when his German Street neighbours had complained about leopards, lions, jackals, Australian dingoes, ocelots, mongoose and even crocodiles which had been seen roaming free on the estate. 
John's personal zoo kept the first giraffe and kangaroo in England as an example, and his menagerie was supported by Sir Joseph Banks and Daniel Salander. John then purchased two large homes between Leicester Square and Castle Street to house this collection, investing an astronomical £10,000 of his own money into his construction in 1783. He then converted the double new house into a public lecture theatre for scientific meetings with a personal museum for his developing collection and upstairs preparation and dissection rooms. He provided separate accommodation for his pupils and cleverly demarcated his fashionable home at the front from the abattoir at the back, the museum proudly displaying the bones that he had personally dissected of elephants, camels, whales, hyenas, pelicans, aardvarks and Surinam toads. That both hunters openly collaborated with the gangs of men, the resurrectionists whose prime motivation was trawling the graveyards for dissectable bodies, doesn't seem in doubt. It's a subject uh, which I'll cover in another podcast, uh, the next one. Both men had been at the back door of the Covent Garden rooms which had taken in all those women dying in childbirth, William hardly acknowledging in his book John's involvement with their dissections. By his own reckoning, John admitted to having dissected some thousands of corpses over more than 30 years of practice, and given the calculus of demand and supply, not all could have had a clean provenance. With such collaborations came an arrogance that bodies such as they are could uh, uh, all be his for the taking whenever he felt compelled to dissect. It was an attitude that would rub off onto his students, John Abernathy, and Sir Astley Cooper, 1768-1841, both of whom would become very prominent London surgeons. Sir Astley Cooper, actually, when asked by a parliamentary select committee about the origin of corpses he had dissected, had haughtily boasted that, quote, the law does not prevent our obtaining the body of an individual if we think proper, for there's no person, let his situation in life be what it may, whom if I were disposed to dissect... I could not obtain. That's an extraordinary remark that he made to the Select Committee on Anatomy in 1834, so they admitted that they would just dissect whoever they wanted to. Just one example of that arrogance is the celebrated story of the Irish giant Charles Byrne, 1761-1783, and how obsessed with collecting him like some prized possession, John became using all means necessary upon Byrne's death to acquire him and then afterwards to openly assemble his unique skeleton. It's a heinous example which has been frequently told, but I repeat it here in brief as a surgeon. I don't think it's been told by surgeons, if only to illuminate how it speaks to John's sense of entitlement, his preoccupation with collecting oddities, his disregard for the humanity of his collection over his perception of its object value and his overall impression of the dignity of the lower social classes. The two-time man Booker Prize-winning author Hilary Mantel has written a fictionalised version of Byrne's life called The Giant O'Brien by Fourth Estate in 1998 uh, with her claim that the book had actually started as a fictional tale of John Hunter 
but that it metamorphosed into an account about Byrne, particularly as she herself rediscovered some of her own Irish roots. Byrne's also mentioned in Charles Dickens' David Copperfield, where he states that Byrne's handspan was so large that it could encompass an average umbrella. That's interesting. There's a similar story in Ireland of Professor Robinson, Professor of Anatomy at, at, at Trinity College, uh, who became obsessed with acquiring the body of a, a seven-foot, uh, three-inch Tipperary giant, Corny McGrath, who was uh, 1736 to 1760, so that he could boil it down and articulate the skeleton. So there was a lot of this kind of stuff that was going on. Indeed, John did this sort of collecting and chasing after collections again when he had a man whose popliteal artery he had successfully ligated for an aneurysm at the back of his knee in 1783, traced down within a week of his death from an unrelated matter in 1787, and John had the operated limb actually returned for dissection so that he could see his surgical handiwork uh, from earlier. There's an example, certainly, of a femoral artery ligated by Hunter above a popliteal aneurysm at the Hunterian collection of the Royal College of Surgeons. I don't know if it's the same one, but there was a lot of this so-called coachman's knee around that time uh, where an aneurysm developed and uh, that would normally be an amputated limb. And John was the first to ligate the aneurysm which uh, saved the limb. Mythology, I think, is replete with the fantastic tales of giants, whether they originate in the Hebrew literature as the so-called Anakim, which is their word simply for huge, or from the tales of Gog and Magog, originally a British story, but perhaps also stemming from the apocalyptic annotations of Islam and filtering out to the warring nomadic Khazar tribes of Mongolia and even beyond. Each culture has its own fear and fascination with anomalies of human size that militarises its famous dwarves like General Tom Thumb, that revels in the obligatory carnival fat lady or that gawps with indrawn breathless awe at the overgrown. Would that these great hulking giants be possessed of special powers like those of Irish folklore that speaks of a whole race of huge men, the Fomorians, inhabiting ancient lands who were said to have preceded the gods themselves. And these tales match the beloved place the Titans held in Greek mythology, no doubt inspired towards action by a combination of folkloric jabber that might have triggered John's sense of entitlement he became totally obsessed with obtaining the body of Charles Byrne, dubbed the Irish giant, whose exact height, although debated, was thought to lay somewhere between 8 foot 2 and 8 foot 4 in stocking feet. Perhaps in today's basketball era, that mightn't seem as spectacular or quite as allegorical as it appeared to George and London's public. Byrne himself was born to rather unremarkable parents in northeast Tyrone, near the border with County Derry, in an area more colloquially referred to as Dramalan, or as the additional sobriquet, one might say, of the Dramalan giant. When you visit that area, 
the locals will actually orientate you by telling you that you lie precisely two and a half kilometres from the village of Koa, or nearly a three-hour walk from Moneymore, or equally, that the small Dramallan village itself lies indistinctly on the road out to Stewartstown. Although to this day villagers know of the notoriety and the fate of Burn, it's pretty rare to spend time in a place like this, which defines itself only by other nearby places or by its proximity to exiting roads. You might not precisely know where you are, but in Dramullen you know how to get out of there. Legend would have it in the Irish pluck that these undistinguished parents conceived Byrne atop a haystack and that that would ascribe to him his prodigious height. But his excessive growth began in puberty and continued rapidly until his untimely death in 1783. Although there were rivals in the country, shows who laid claim to be taller than Byrne, none, it might seem, could match him in stature or public drawer. One of these rivals was Patrick Cotter, who had claimed not only to have been born within five miles of Byrne, but who also changed his name to O'Byrne in an attempt to mimic Byrne's success. Cotter's height had been verified at eight feet, although there'd be more than that measured on the skeleton at the Royal College of Surgeons of the real Byrne, which is actually seven foot seven. Cotter had left clear instructions in his will and money for the purpose to ensure that his coffin was encased in lead and that should be, he should be entombed within 12 feet of solid rock so as to discourage the likelihood of medical exhumation. It's rare, by the way, that a claim actually made in life is surpassed in death, but an exhumation of Cotter in 1972 measured him at 8 foot 1, which made him substantially taller than Byrne. And equally at the time, there was a touring set of twins, the Knight brothers, who were referred to as the Colossuses and who rivalled the notoriety of Byrne. And although the twins appeared with Byrne, he was said to tower over them, despite them being the tallest recorded twins to date. So to give an idea of the excitement that such giants sort of provoked, of them, that's the Knight twins, the Dublin University magazine had written, quote, they're beyond what is set forth in ancient or modern history. The sight of them is more than the mind can conceive, the tongue express or pencil delineate and stands without parallel in this or any other country. We shall scarce look upon their like again, unquote. Byrne's parents were delighted when news of the gentle giant had reached the Coa entrepreneur Joe Vance, a man used to organising travelling roadshows and who enthralled the Burns seniors with magical tales of the English and European tours he could organise for their son. So off they went initially touring in Northern Ireland and Scotland, where rumours of Byrne lighting his pipe from the tall oil lamps of Edinburgh's North Bridge, even stooping to do so, made their way to the in the uh, daily dispatches southwards towards London. By the time Byrne arrived in London in late 1782, his reputation had preceded him and fair organisers were queuing up to sign him to exhibiting contracts. His fortunes, such as they were, were significantly enhanced by his demeanour, whereby all accounts, or at least those of the Morning Herald and the London Chronicle, 
Byrne's elegant dress was equally matched by his disposition. The giant man would sit in his front drawing room, receiving paying guests and engaging them in polite conversation. Byrne rapidly found work at Cox's Museum, set up in the Spring Gardens, now near Admiralty Arch, a curious mix of bespoke automated clockwork and watchmaking combined with a little small corner of the aesthetically bizarre. The museum was run by the jeweller James Cox, who had used his considerable wealth derived from a monopoly on the sale of personalised handmade clocks to China to fund his interest in a private esoteric collection. Cox's establishment became very fashionable and he was frequented by Samuel Johnson, his biographer James Boswell and the playwright Richard Sheridan. Cox ultimately fell from grace as his competitors were able to flood the market with cheaper, albeit less intricate, timepieces. And his main collection was auctioned off and dissolved in 1775 after he'd declared uh, bankruptcy. George's society was rich, by the way, with the chance meetings of men distinguished by their unusual appearances. And just have to think also later on about Victorian England and the Elephant Man. There was an interest and a taste for this sort of thing. And such was Byrne's notoriety that he was displayed alongside the travelling dwarf, Count Josef Borovlaski, 1739-1837, who at uh, uh, 25 inches tall was fresh uh, from a European tour that had launched in London by mishap when the ship on which he was travelling almost sank in a storm off Margate. There, too, they were joined by London's famous morbidly obese man, Daniel Lambert, 1770-1809, a gentle giant who was said to have such great strength that he could be seen regularly fighting a wild bear in the streets of Leicester. There's now actually an enormous life-size model of Lambert dressed in replica clothing in Durham's town hall. And like Byrne, Lambert had taken to staying at home and charging the public an entrance fee just to meet with him. On more than one occasion, Byrne was presented to the King and Queen and also formally discussed by the Royal Society, whose members had expressed their enchantment with him but who were pretty clueless as to the cause of his gigantism. Actually, in 1909, Harvey Cushing, who was the North American father of neurosurgery and who described the first removal of a brain tumour in the United States, was given permission by the Royal College of Surgeons to examine Byrne's skull, and he discovered that Byrne's condition was due to a very large pituitary tumour because the pituitary foster of the skull had been uh, hollowed out. St. Bartholomew's Professor of, uh, of Endocrinology, Dr. Marta Korbinitz, petitioned the college to extract DNA from Byrne's skeleton, removing two of his molar teeth, and she found a rare genetic mutation associated with a small minority of these pituitary tumours. She was also able to find um, that Byrne's DNA was related to a current sufferer of a similar pituitary tumour, 
and she found four families in Northern Ireland with the same mutation, which suggested a sort of heredofamilial tumour which she could trace back about 1,500 years to a potential common ancestor. Byrne's fame grew and he became the subject of a professional caricature so beloved by the aristocracy. But with the fickleness of a society crammed with many peculiarities and curiosities to see, Byrne's novelty soon waned and moving to less prestigious digs in Cockspur Street, Charing Cross, he took to the drink, losing his entire life savings, some £700, one night whilst inebriated. John Hunter, hearing of Byrne's fall from grace and that Byrne had taken to his bed and was in a terminally morbid state, dispatched his personal assistant, a shadowy figure, John Howison, to monitor the health of Byrne and to report back should his condition worsen. Determined to have Byrne's skeleton at all costs as part of his collection, John, like his rival lesser surgeons, sat vigil with Byrne, fearing dissection, gathering his friends to his bedside. Byrne's friends hastily decided to place an advertisement in the popular gentleman's magazine so as to impress all and sundry that Byrne, knowing he was going to die soon, wished for his remains to be buried at sea. When Byrne died on June the 1st, 1783, his cadre of friends honoured his pleas and printed a formal statement in the gentleman's magazine to the effect that requesting that, quote, his ponderous remains might be thrown into the sea in order that his bones might be placed far out of reach of the surgical fraternity, unquote. Byrne needn't have considered himself paranoid as the Morning Herald uh, on the 5th of June 1783 reported that, quote, the whole tribe of surgeons put in a claim for the poor departed Irish giant and surrounded his house just as Greenland harpooners would an enormous whale, unquote. But it had all been to no avail, despite Byrne's elaborate efforts to keep out of the hands of the surgeons. Far from being an imbecile, Byrne had paid local fishermen to take his body in secret the 75 miles to Margaret, inviting them to weigh his coffin down so that the likes of Hunter would be deterred. But John had already bribed the undertaker to assist his henchmen who'd been following the cortege after it left London. In their slow movement to the eastern seaboard, the revellers stopped at almost every tavern on the way, and when in need of money, they openly took to charging passers-by a small fee to see the coffin. Whilst drunk one night, they were persuaded to leave it unattended in a nearby barn, where, according to one of John's contemporary biographers, Drury Otley, the body was whisked away and the coffin weighed down with paving stones to fool the company. That appears in Drury Otley's The Life of John Hunter, which was published in 1839. In his book Leicester Square on the Aristocracy of the Time, Tom Taylor disparagingly suggested that for John Hunter's men, the likelihood of success would have been very high, as the road was long, the weather hot, the coffin heavy, and the bearers Irish. Good heavens, extraordinary. As far as we can tell, none of the troop were any of the wiser, and the coffin was duly taken out to sea and 
slid off the skip with full private ceremony. As for John, he was awaiting the body at his residence, where it's said that he proceeded to dismember it that night and boil the bones of their soft tissues. John's brazenness was clearly evident, however, when he openly displayed Burns' bones now articulated in his private collection at the back of his Castle Street home. But he remained circumspect given his role in the matter and waited four years before declaring his involvement in procuring Burns' skeleton, revealing in a letter to the naturalist Sir Joseph Banks that, quote, I lately got a tall man, but at the time could make no particular observations, unquote. There's much, I think, here that may either be fact or fancy. What is believed known of John Hunter in this matter is provided by Otley in his book, but none of it is corroborated, and it reads in part with the disdain that some biographers can occasionally develop for their subjects as their researchers reveal life moments that conflict with their biographical pa passions. The original price for Byrne offered to the undertaker was £130, but it's suggested that the asking price became progressively more daring, placing Hunter in a bidding war that escalated £50 every minute until he was prepared to offer the princely sum of £500 for Byrne's body. The revellers had charged some two shillings sixpence just to look at the coffin, which would seem an exorbitant fee for very little. As for the switch of paving stones, the annual reporter Chronicle was the only magazine at the time to directly accuse Hunter, who remained silent and who was never interviewed by the police. Refurbishment of the Hunter Museum, now closed until maybe even 2023, it's understood that the Board of Trustees of the Hunterian Collection have taken the matter of repatriation of Burns skeleton under an advisement and it's possible we may never see its display uh, again. It's most likely a cast will be made for display, although the matter is still in dispute as there are living relatives of Byrne. One side argues that the skeleton is of ongoing medical interest. That's the director of the... Um, uh, college Museum, Dr Sam Alberti, and the other side suggests that since DNA has already been retrieved and given the repatriation of Maori and Native American artefacts from other museums, that Byrne's original wishes for a burial at sea should be honoured. Although the UK Human Tissue Act would prevent such treatment of bones today, it cannot be initiated retrospectively. Uh, even Hilary Mantel has taken up the case in favour of Byrne being um, sent off to sea. In part two of this um, section on sibling rivalry, I want to discuss a little bit more about the museums and the sibling rivalry of Hunter, uh, of uh, William Hunter and John Hunter, uh, and we'll continue that next time.